Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's binary episode of the Day Zero podcast. For those who didn't tune into the bounty episode for this week, this week's episodes are being recorded and not live streamed due to some stuff going on on my end. Next week's podcast will also likely be canceled. Um, hopefully things will be back to normal the week after that, but I'm not 100% sure yet. And because we're recording this week, there's no spot the ball to jump into, so we can get right into our topics. So up first out of Google, uh, we got news that Google is expanding their research reward program from KCTF or Kernel CTF, which has been around for a while, to include a few more programs. And uh, I'll let Z get into this one. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with KCTF, one of the main things about that is just the fact that, uh, yeah, you can still report like O-Day vulnerabilities and such, but you would also get a bounty for writing end-day exploits and just capturing the flag on their KCTF environment. Um, and so that meant you could take end days and you would get bonuses for like having uh, unique or like not otherwise seen exploitation strategies. So they've taken that idea from KCTF and gotten a lot of information more on the exploitation side of things, taking that and now they're applying it into V8 and KVM with the V8 CTF and KVM CTF coming up after that. Uh, which I thought was just neat. It's maybe a little bit of motivation to get some practice doing the exploit dev and kind of get in there with that. Um, from KCTF, they've also published this KCTF cookbook, which gets into like the uh, exploitation strategies and kind of tries to boil them down to like some key components and just like a really useful, if you're doing Linux kernel exploitation, a really useful reference for how people have done some exploits. Um, so I'm excited Useful to see... pull inspiration from, for sure. Yeah, and I'm excited to see the expansion. Like, I do think it is a very beneficial program. So seeing the expansion to V8 and into... Uh, I guess more so V8 is obviously... A lot of people are interested in doing browser exploitation. Uh, it's never really been, like, my major folks at any point, but a lot of people do care about it. So I think it's nice that they're expanding into that. A lot fewer people kind of care about Linux kernel exploitation, although... Android obviously has some demand there. Just to clarify, V8 is is Chrome for for those who aren't aware. It's the Chrome JavaScript engine. Um, so yeah, V8, uh, the V8 CTF was launched for Chrome, KVM CTF for uh, kernel based virtual machine. I did look into some of the particulars. They link off to uh, the the rules. So V8 CTF has a reward up to 10k. Uh, and they expect a reliability of at least 80% and a time to exploit of less than five minutes, which is pretty generous. Um, and similar to KCTF, like Z mentioned, you can use end days as well as zero days if they've managed to get you the flag. Uh, the KVM payouts are higher and more tiered. So a full VM escape would net about 100k maximum. Uh, arbitrary write would be 35k max. Arbitrary read at 25k and a host DOS of 15k. Uh, and those don't stack. Uh, it's whatever is the highest primitive you're able to achieve. Um, I do find it interesting that the V8 CTF reward was as low as it was. I was expecting it to be a bit higher because the browser, like the browser market, is not that much lower. I wouldn't think than uh like the vm escape like kvm so i don't know i, th I thought that was a little bit weird but um because like a v8 exploit is especially using a novel technique is going to be quite a lot of work but um maybe that'll end up going up in the in the future who knows so i think i'm i don't know for sure i didn't look too deeply at this but my guess would in part be because the v8 ctf is probably focused just on v8 so you don't have all of that surrounding 
Chrome sandbox and everything. It's just getting the code execution within the V8 environment. Uh, whereas the KVM fair. escape, um, I was kind of think like obviously KVM escape is a full escape from the KVM, which Spike name like it's not a full. Basically, the VM, V8 but... attack surface is a little bit like you have more to work with. Yeah, like for getting to the host, you you have a bit more access there, but it is very heavily used. You know, Kubernetes uh, uses KVM, um, and obviously a ton of companies are using that. Google themselves are using that. So while the demand, like client-side demand, obviously V8 is going to be a lot more hit, well, KVM definitely has like a very wide usage. And it's just kind of overlooked as even being part of those stacks because there are other things that kind of take the focus. Uh, but yeah, if I had to make a guess there, it's more just because the V8 escape is only still keeping you inside of V8. It's not doing the rest of the Chrome chain. That, but that is kind of just a guess on how they came up with the values. Yeah, and I, I guess that's fair. Um, but I did want to point out what the reward values were and that the rules were up so that if you, you know, had to choose between a program, uh, the information is all there for you, even though the KVM CTF, I don't think that's launched yet. I think it's only the V8 CTF that's launched so far. Um, they stated that the, the KVM one is going to launch later in the year. So, you know, hopefully within yeah. the next month or two or whatever. Well, yeah, I guess they just say <laughs> if it's in the year, coming. it would have to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that we're close to the end of this year. I was just saying, yeah, anytime within the next 12 months. Yeah, no, we're we're pretty close. Um, So, yeah, uh, speaking of some bugs, are going to have some wide impact. Uh, our first full exploit post is uh, the infamous WebP0 day that was patched in September and written up by Ben Hawks. Um, quite a complicated bug, probably one of the more complicated ones that we'll have covered because it deals with the particulars of Huffman coding, which um, I don't really have experience with. I haven't really tried to write image uh, like image parsers or anything like that. But uh, Z dug into it and and went through the pain, so I'll let him talk about it here. Yeah, and Huffman coding kind of underpins a lot of modern compression in general. Uh, like it's definitely more than just images. Like it started with text, and the first Huffman tree was really just about compressing text down, largely because images people are still using like lossy compressioners they're still okay with that anyway like as a bug um it's really hard to kind of craft the input that hits this one um and there are probably some details that i'm not exactly understanding i think i have kind of a grasp over this but i definitely still have some questions so i'm kind of going to apologize up front if I maybe mislead a little bit on this one. Um, so within WebP, if you're not familiar, WebP is an image format lossless A very annoying and, image format. Yep. Yeah, and this is within... Uh, yeah, VP8L encoding or compression system. They've got the decompression code here. Um, and it's this decompression code that actually creates the issue. But underlying all that is yeah they're using huffman codes and it, so that would be used of course for the pixel data being encoded with these huffman codes and then not just that but they take the huffman codes and those are also encoded with huffman codes because you want to compress the table of the huffman codes for the image so you're sending less data too so 
you know, they kind of have these layers of Hoffman codes. So part of the process here is they have to build. um, Yes, they have to build the Huffman table back up after they've after they've uh or while they're processing the data in the actual image file so this is attacker controlled data that's being processed and they'll build back up the huffman table one thing that kind of confused me a little bit here is they refer to as build huffman table uh but in reality it seems like they're building at least at least in this case for what they found is exploitable was uh five huffman tables and internally the web piece structure is um, they have a Huffman table structure. Uh, that table contains Huffman segments, which then contain Huffman codes. Um, and what it seems like is effectively every segment is like just your Huffman table. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, the core idea with the Huffman table is you have some... Actually, I should say the core idea is starting with the Huffman tree, which is usually the more understandable way of doing this, where... Basically, if you turn a bit on, you go left or right, or... Okay, if you turn a bit off, so it's zero, you're going left. If you're turning the bit um, on, you're going right. And you kind of use that sort of table structure to encode bit sequences that map to character or, like, byte sequences. Um, And effectively, what you're getting is a mapping of bits to bytes uh, that it decompresses and there's a whole frequency thing for like how to actually encode that with your data it's customized to whatever's actually being compressed where the most frequent data gets encoded with the fewest number of bits Um, and they have a little bit of a strategy for choosing those bits so it's able to decode um, without making any mistakes so you won't have a case of a bit sequence that could be read in multiple different ways. Like every bit sequence is, of course, it's unique for what maps out to bits, but they're also not ambiguous. So not all possible bit sequences are used. Um, Like, you know, if you use the bit zero for one care or for one set of bytes, and then you use, um, let's say zero one for another set of, or as bits for another set of bytes, when you're parsing that, you're going to encounter that zero. And how do you know, you know, there's the one coming up? Um, you kind of have that ambiguity when you just kind of reach that first zero. Is it going to be the, the zero or should it be parsed as the zero one? Uh, so they kind of craft the bits in such a way that you don't have those ambiguities. Uh, as you're reading it the first time you actually hit a match with the bits that you've read will be the character to put in that place. Uh, that kind of matters. But I guess I'll get on that a little bit later. Uh, But that's kind of your Hoffman tables are being built up here. They talk about having to build five segments up for where they found the vulnerability. I'm not sure if that is something that's coming from the WebP structure where you encode like these five different things. And that's why it's always five segments. Or if there are cases where there will be more segments. I can't say that the case that they found to be vulnerable. uh, They were having to craft five segments. Um, unfortunately, I am not that familiar with the internals to actually know, but the core issue here is somewhat simple to understand in that what they do is when they're building the Hoffman table, they of course allocate the space for the table. And what they do is they basically take the, um, take the color cache bits, like how many bits being used for that, and they just have a lookup table pre-computed over how big all of these Huffman tables can be. So they have the table sizes effectively predetermined. Um, 
I do also have a link to the patch commit here, which does help when you're looking at some of this code to kind of see what they're doing or what seems a little bit weird. Um, I think they have the allocation in here too. Yeah. So this Huffman table, uh, what's t doing is this table size value is what's fixed. Um, that is coming just out of out of a lookup table where they pre-computed, you know, for this many bits or the color bit thing for this value, you're getting this size. Um, and that just has to do, I believe, as I mentioned, where there, there's kind of that certain bit sequence that it's using as it's encoding data, as the Huffman tree is encoding data. Um, the table size, I believe, is just because you can only go so far in a legitimate Huffman table. Um, like there's only so many bit sequences you could use for like, you know, a 15 bit series or whatever. There's only so many sequences. So it can only be so large. Um, and so they're just allocating for the largest maximum size. Uh, and then the core problem or the vulnerability ends up being, well, what if you create tables that do encode bigger than that? Uh, fortunately they do somewhat defend against this, uh, because, um, I'm just trying to find my link to the commit for this one. I believe this is it. Yeah, so right here is they're building the Huffman tree. So this is the uh, build, or sorry, building the Huffman table. I am going to use those two terms interchangeably. They are building a table, even if I say tree, because that's kind of mentally what I've always worked with and kind of know better. They're building a table, which is that whole tree system, but instead of that, it's just a table hash map. Well, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the internal is here, but it's a table for them to do lookups of the bit sequences instead of needing to walk the tree. Anyway, in this build Huffman table, uh, towards the end here, they have this check, and this is basically like a consistency check, a sanity check, making sure the number of nodes that were generated are actually what they calculated as should be. The uh, max or the number of nodes, and if that fails, they just return a failure. They return that they create zero nodes instead of the actual size that was created. So on once in one sense, you can't craft an invalid table because that check's going to fail. Problem is that this thing, while it's building the tree, it's doing the uh, the writes in this. Like it is writing to that buffer. So if you do get going out of bounds and creating too many nodes. Um, then it's just going right out of bounds and, you know, you'll enter the air path after it goes here, but you've already done the right up in the earlier code. Uh, and so effectively what ends up happening for this vulnerability is, uh, they craft four legitimate segments that are as large as possible. They're trying to get themselves into the buffer as far as they can. Uh, so they are all maximum size, but completely legitimate, so they don't end early. But on that fifth uh, segment, when they're creating that, they create a malformed segment. And they have kind of an image of it. So the image I've got up on stream right now, or I guess on recording right now, um, kind of shows the Huffman table where they'll have uh, kind of had all of these terminal nodes they'll have a double circle just representing basically that some they've got an actual value there. And this is kind of what the normal tree-ish could look like. All those terminal nodes are ending with a value and, you know, you can 
kind of see i don't think this will show up too well on stream for you guys but you can see like the one and zero path where going left gives you one right gives you zero i think i said the opposite earlier but it's really just a convention on that um just how you kind of follow the bits and then you get down to whatever value has been encoded there so that's what a normal one should look like everything as you get to the end the terminal nodes they've always got values down there um and then you've got their malformed one that was able to trigger uh, out of bounds right. And that one, you'll notice it looks fairly similar at the start. Um, this early part looks fairly similar. If you look closely, you can kind of see all the double, double circles, which indicate their valid nodes. Kind of get there, and the rest of this is a bunch of nodes, and all of these terminal nodes will... I'll zoom in slightly for you guys, but all of these basically just terminate. They don't have values and they're nodes that would never be reachable normally. Like if you actually took the bid encoding, these are where you're getting into like those ambiguous bid encodings, things that just wouldn't work normally, but they're creating a whole bunch of extra nodes here and each node is getting its new table entry. So it is writing out of bounds and writing somewhat attacker controlled information. Uh, from this out of bounds as it's writing because it's creating too many nodes. Um, they're not actually bounce checking as they write. They just assume you're going to fit. Uh, so yeah, fundamentally, like that core issue is just the fact that it allocates based on the fixed size, doesn't actually validate that's going to fit within there, and it's writing um, and it doesn't detect the issue has happened until after it's already done these out of bounds writes. So, in a sense, it's kind of easy to explain, but also very complicated to understand the layers of the Huffman trees here, the, or, you know, the uh, Huffman table and the segments and all of that. Getting really complicated to hit it, but fundamentally, I would say, like, a big part of that error is just that consistency check happening too late. Um, and, in fact, the patch is basically, if it fails an earlier check, they're just not even going to bother decoding it. They're just going to kick it out. and air early with it um so they don't really go into how to exploit this he does mention that he did manage to get up to like a 400 byte out of bounds right um on twitter there was kind of a question raised by uh someone they somewhat collaborated on this with uh misty mountain misty mountain cop i'll just bring up this tweet here um, mentioning astute observers may notice a problem with our sample. The fifth invalid Huffman table causes the WebP decoder to take the error path or error code path, effectively ending decoding. Seems problematic for zero click exploit. Uh, so as mentioned, this this vulnerability was seen in the wild, but as far as I know, Ben Hawks, author of the post, didn't have access to an actual uh, payload or an actual attempt to exploit this, but went about just trying to figure it out from the commit. Uh, from the problem that was reported by Apple and the public commit that came following that. Um, yeah, so, so that's something I think we skipped over, but I do want to quickly mention is they're not 100% sure that this uh, this bug was used in the BlastPass chain, but they, they're reasonably confident. Um, but yeah, Apple did, um, like the, the patch commit that Z referenced earlier, Apple reported this to Chrome um, after they were made aware of it being exploited in the wild. So um, that's kind of how the information got to to google to patch it um which is why also why like a lot of things that parse webp are suspected to be vulnerable it's not just 
Apple devices, um, Android devices are also likely vulnerable as well as a, a whole host of other things. Um, but yeah, I think we did kind of skip over that. So I did just want to quickly shout that out. And that's yeah, also why there's not really any exploit information. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to kind of jump into that now as like, you know, so this is Ben Hawk's take on how this ex or how this vulnerability could have been exploited. It's believed that this is the same as the uh, blast pass vulnerability reported by uh, Citizen Guard. I think I always Citizen think, Lab. <laughs> Citizen Citizen Lab. Yes, I I always I always want to go to a uh, Citizen Zero, which I think was like Snowden movie or something. I haven't even seen it, but I've got Citizen Zero stuck in my head. Every time I try and remember the name of this company, I'm like, no, it's definitely not Zero, but what is it? <laughs> and I can never remember. We talked about this like right before the podcast. Inspector yeah, that's said Citizen Lab, for... and I still yeah. screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I can't remember for the life of me. Uh, but yeah, they report on that. Um, one kind of interesting just about that was just the fact that it was called Blast Pass because um, iMessage has their Blast Door sandbox. And by, I guess, using this image exploit in a passkit attachment, they would just bypass the whole iMessage, iMessage sandbox altogether. Um, not really relevant to this vulnerability, but I thought that was kind of an interesting aspect, too. Just dodging the sandbox uh, through how they're getting their image actually, or through what they're getting their image loaded. Uh, loaded through but yeah on exploitation we don't have like a sample or two see how like it was actually exploited in the wild i think which does kind of suck because when i'm reading through this um the bug is cool don't get me wrong like it's a very deep uh vulnerability that like i'm not surprised it's, a, it's escape notice for this long like this is a, a really technical bug um how you would actually exploit this though especially in the failure case uh, it's hard to imagine how you would like, you're not in a great position as an attacker, I guess, um, at the time you'd be exploiting this bug. Like you're dealing with a message app. You typically, typically don't have like a lot of like primitives or control over the, the heap state. And this ultimately is like a heap overflow. So I would be really interested in how you would reliably be able to exploit a bug like this. Uh, it seems like a really tight exploit scenario, but yeah, and this we is one shot too because it's that, just an image yeah, coming exactly. in, uh, which is especially challenging uh, for kind of the reasons you said you don't have the allocation control and stuff like that. Yeah, so they had mentioned like they were able to get like four hundred or up to four hundred byte out of bounds right, uh, which is fair. That is a very significant amount of data to be overriding. Um, in the air path, so the writes have already happened before it goes down the air path. So you do have this window where these writes have happened. Yes, it airs, but they have happened. You do potentially have other data that isn't even necessarily WebP related sitting around in the heap that you might be next to. Don't have a lot of grooming control unless they have something crazy going on, which has been seen on iOS exploits before. Um, I'm thinking of the one where they had... Uh, what was it? They used like a decoding library where they to create basically like a Turing complete set of gadgets for themselves to actually get something out of it. But that, as far as I'm aware, that is not the normal case. 
Because, yeah, with, with, like, such a large out-of-bound right, like, it feels like it should be exploitable if you have the right knowledge. And getting that right knowledge is going to be a challenge. Um, they do not go into exploitation. We don't know, but... I don't know. It Obviously, it is exploitable. Like, they did manage to do it somehow. Maybe they had some other way of triggering it, though, or, like, something else go on with it. Can build better primitives. As, as possible, they just were able to find themselves in a more favorable scenario than what this exploit strategy led to. Yeah. Because um, this is what, you know, Ben Hawks had thought up, not necessarily what the attackers used. So it could just be something like that. Um, but I kind of want to, um, like, t keeping all that information in mind, uh, there was a lot of, um, I guess, fear mongering around this bug. So I, I was looking around on social media and stuff, and there were people like, oh, WebP, this is terrible. Like, it's supported everywhere. Um, this could be used to pop anybody in like every device. And, you know, I don't want to completely hand wave away the concerns. Like, even towards the conclusion of the post, Ben Hawks talks about how, you know, the this bug likely exists in a lot of products and whatnot, but actually trying to weaponize this bug is would be like a serious endeavor. Um, it's not like you're just going to see exploits popping up for this everywhere use in malware or something like it's, it's a technological achievement weaponizing and vulnerability like this, especially in like the mobile case, like, um, like Android and Apple devices with sandboxing and such. Um, so you know, I, I did want to bring that up and just say that I think there is a little bit of hyperbole going around with this vulnerability. Um, yeah, and I and, agree. Uh, like, that is, I think, a really important point is a lot of people kind of talk this bug up. And for those that found it who have a good understanding of exploiting it, they very well may be able to continue to use this or port it over somewhere else, depending on how they, uh, what their strategy look like. But I think as far as I'm aware... I'm just looking it up right now. Like, there hasn't even been anybody that has managed to weaponize this into a proof of concept. I don't think there has been any proof of concept published yet, so... Not that I've seen. Like, it hasn't been that long. This was disclosed, or this was posted, I guess, on the 21st. Uh, I, the vulnerability itself was kind of disclo disclosed and known about before that. Uh, yeah, give, giving it, you know, the few weeks... The fact that, like, everybody had eyes on this, knew about it, and nobody's actually managed to get a repro going, uh, that does something useful, does speak, I think, quite a bit to the difficulty of actually trying to exploit this somewhere. Um, yeah. Especially because, yeah. like I said, it is prevalent. Like, it's not like LibWebP was this unknown library. Yeah, I think they mentioned like it's it's been like picked over and it's been fuzzed and whatnot. Like it's yeah, it's not just some obscure area that has uh, escaped notice. Um, now, something else I wanted to bring up, too, that uh, is talked a little bit about in the conclusion. Uh, it's kind of along the same line of thought, but they talk about how. Um, I'll just kind of read out this quote at uh, at face value. So the lack of available technical information from the vendors here made verification challenging and it's questionable who this really benefits. Um, and basically what they're talking about here is the fact that attackers, they're always going to be more motivated. They're always going to have more, um, you know, readily accessible information uh, and be willing to dig to get that information. And 
like this lack of documentation or technical information by the vendors, like it, it seems like they do it in the interest of like, hey, if, if we don't make information available, then people won't want to put in the effort to attack it, which is just proven wrong time and time again. Um, and Ben Hawks is kind of making a case, like, you know, an additional data point in the case that it's like, um, situations like this only really benefit the attackers because defenders are not going to have, typically they're not going to have the resources to um, look into all the particulars of this bug and if they need to be, if they need it patched or if they have to come up with a patch themselves, how to do that. Like it, it's very stacked in the attacker's favor being um, so vague and, and providing a lack of technical information, um, which I don't think we talk about too much on the show, but it does come it's, up a it's little a valid bit. concern i think um yeah it's definitely something like i've talked about a fair bit not necessarily on the podcast but just in general because it ties in to the wider discussion that especially some newcomers will have is why even do a vulnerability disclosure at all doesn't that just advantage script kitties and what it actually does is it brings everybody up to the same level it takes away the advantage that attackers have by giving, you know, the security professionals who aren't going to be able to invest that same amount of time, it brings everybody up to the same level. So yes, it does also bring script kiddies up, but it brings everybody else up to the same level as those motivated attackers. Um, it raises the floor, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. It raises the floor when we put all the information out there, and I think that is better overall for for everybody's security. It's to have everybody at that same starting place rather than rewarding people for uh, being a, well, obviously they're going to get their reward, like monetary reward or whatever they're doing. Like there's going to be that motivation, but not giving an advantage to those motivated people, but actually advantaging the defenders. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a really important point that it really doesn't. Like, the only thing it really saves is uh, reputation, corporate reputation from the vendors yeah. uh, and being able to downplay things and just not make it clear. Uh, also talk a little bit about the uh, aspect of fuzzing and how this would be a hard bug to fuzz unless you happen to have your bug fuzzing in just that right area and already kind of targeted towards this sort of issue. Uh, because it does require that, like four of your five Huffman tables be, or segments, be valid, and then just that one invalid one that's invalid in just the right way to create an issue, and, you know, so it doesn't fail somewhere earlier or something. Uh, you know, it is, I think, a fair point that, you know, there is a lot of trust in fuzzers and using fuzzing for security. And it's not a especially replacement. for things like images, like uh, file formats. It's it's a huge thing, especially. Yeah, I'm just I'm not sure if it's necessarily an over reliance on it. Um, it definitely gets the priority, but it does to some extent work. Like I guess, I guess kind of what I've got in my head is. Isn't necessarily an over reliance or just a lack of doing other things. Um, like, I don't think it's that we should step away from fuzzing and like fuzzing doesn't work because fuzzing does work. Um, as I've said a few times, like it is unreasonably effective, but it's not the only thing that should be done. 
but for many companies, for a lot of things, like it is a very good step and should be part of the process, but so should the manual auditing, so should the code review, and especially paid third-party audits. Um, as important as the code reviews are by like an internal team checking all the commits, uh, third parties coming in, a different set of eyes, different set of assumptions can bring up issues that get overlooked by the internal team. Um, and the internal team, though, does have better insight on certain issues that are very kind of localized and internal to that team. Um, and they have they have some advantage in a way, but third parties do bring in an advantage too. Like both of those need to be there as part of the overall process on security. Um, it's not just fuzzing. Yeah, you need to have um, like basically what he's calling out for here is uh, the hybrid approach. Um, so investing more into the proactive source review and and you know not dropping fuzzing or anything, just incorporating the uh, the source review as well. Yeah, the second point. So he does make the two points. I think there needs to be bigger investment in proactive source code reviews and renewed folks on during parses are adequately sandboxed. Sandboxing aspect. Google's done a pretty good job of this, like especially since um, Stage Fright. Uh, they've done a really good job of kind of targeting or getting in on Android and locking down the attack service, creating sandboxes for a lot of things, moving things into sandboxes. I think those steps, I think a lot of companies overlook that aspect of just trying to sandbox segments of their code. And that's not always possible, depending on how it's running and stuff. But attack surface, limiting the potential attack surfs is huge just in overall security um you know if vulnerable code can't be reached in a vulnerable way it's not exploitable um so i i just wanted to call it that i think that is also a excellent point all right so early on in the show we talked about uh kctf and our next post dives into that a little bit so this was a post over the summer uh it's a linux kernel exploit write-up from hombre on a bug and uh that ultimately came out of a kctf report uh, another iou ring bug just to be yeah, clear since then iou ring has been disabled on the kernel ctf config but at the time it was reported it was still a valid target um sorry I just what was that say, like i'm super happy to see a post from hombre because i think like last time he posted was probably a year ago and that was just a ctf thing and then it wasn't until like 2021. I mean, he always has really great posts, and this one's no exception to that. So I just want to shout that out. Yeah. Uh, so like I said, IOU ring has been disabled on the, the kernel CTF config because it was just, uh, I think at one point, literally every single bug that was reported to KCTF was an IOU ring. Um, so yeah, that's that's changed since, since this bug was reported. But yeah, so they saw this bug reported on the KCTF spreadsheet and was curious to dig into it and see if they could exploit it using techniques that weren't super well known or published. The original vulnerability was actually pretty simple. Uh, basically, when processing these IO ring op message ring commands, um, uh, sorry, operations for signaling another ring, uh, that would take a file descriptor for the ring or file the signal. And then after it finished processing, it would just do a put uh, or ref count decrement on the file. But the problem is if that passed in file was what's called a fixed file, which is like managed by IOU ring, um, that file would already get its reference count decremented by 
bio-uring unregistered files. So in the case of fixed files, it would get freed while the file descriptor was still valid and installed in the process. Um, so classic UAF, uh, very nice bug having like a a file descriptor to a freed file. Like that's that's the type of primitive that you would go for from a weaker bug. Um, so it's it's definitely a nice thing to start off with. And the rest of the post goes into exploitation, uh, which is a nice read as it's more of like a journalistic style approach of trying to do some novel Linux kernel exploitation, um, trying to see which routes worked and and which ones were uh, like had some problems. So first thing that it was try to get a, an arbitrary read primitive, which, you know, is kind of where my mind goes a lot of the time. Um, so they started looking at syscalls that would take a file descriptor of which they would have a free to file for and do a copy to user using a pointer that was stored in the file. Um, they don't say exactly how they do that, but I'm guessing it was just um, cross references. Um, but there are some other tools that could be used for that too. Yeah, I guess they do mention actually that they use cross references to visit the kernel code base, which I handle, which handle the syscall implementation, just control F, copy to user. Yeah, so there um, you go. Um, yeah, just it's fairly straightforward cross referencing. Yeah, um, and so, I'll shout out, because we did have a question out of Discord a little while back. Um, I forget exactly who asked it, but it was basically about uh, how you, how somebody would look for primitives for a kernel XY. They end up talking about a double free, but use after, use after free is kind of related to that. You just only have, you have a little bit less control. Um and honestly, that sort of thing, like, just reading the code is completely valid. I like to jump into CodeQL, I think unsurprisingly to a lot of people, given how much I'll talk about CodeQL. I kind of like that because you can kind of map in or write queries that match your uh, constraints. But there's also, like, PA hole and stuff, too, that can be used to find the right things. But you always have to, or it always ends with reading the code to actually figure out how to hit the path that does whatever you want or how is that structure used and such. Yeah, so in this case, they managed to find uh, a pretty good arbitrary read primitive quickly uh, through the fget read write hint file control operation, uh, which would take a file inode's uh, write hint pointer and, and copy out from that. Um, from past write-ups and inspiration, uh, they, they basically decided to use pipe buffers for overlapping with file data. So in the Linux kernel, like file objects are going to be in their own cache. Um, and pipe buffers are also going to be in their own cache, but if you, you know, free a whole page, um, from a cache, you can get that reclaimed by another cache and pipe buffers in particular are pretty useful because you can control, uh, well, for one thing, you get a whole page of them. So, uh, you you have less, uh, randomness or noise in your, in your allocation. And then also you can control like the entire contents as an attacker. So it's a very useful, uh, primitive. So yeah, by, uh, overwriting the file object with um, contents control to the pipe buffer, uh, they could overwrite that that pointer that was used for the file hint. And uh, yeah, they, they had arbitrary rate. It was, it was pretty easy. Um, the next question though is, you know, what do you do with it? Because you haven't defeated kernel ASLR yet. You can read a pointer, but where do you read? Um, well, what they decided to go for with that is something that I, I think I'd seen before, but I'd kind of forgotten about, uh, which is CPU entry area objects. Um, these are objects that are at like a fixed address and they contain per CPU information for things like interrupt handling. Um, and so by using this arbitrary read and just reading that fixed address, 
um, they could read out the error entry function pointer and defeat KSLR pretty easily. Uh, where it got a bit trickier for exploitation was getting an arbitrary write. Um, using the same trick of searching for copy from users um, on the file didn't yield results the same way right away, though what did end up turning results was looking for copies on the private data of the file, um, which for those who aren't familiar with the Linux kernel, uh, every file has like a private data field that may or may not be used depending on the driver that's implementing, uh, you know, the functionality using the private data. Typically, it'll be used by like the read-write handlers or ioctl handler or whatever. Um, so it's it's an it's an opaque pointer. How it's used is depending on uh, whatever subsystem is setting it up. Um, and it turns out a good place to hit was the IOU ring system itself, um, specifically IO message ring where the bug is. So the target context pointer that's used by IO message ring uh, is ultimately casted off from the private data field. And even better, eventually this IO commit CQ ring function for committing a write of the completion queue ring would use that context for writing the cache completion queue ring tail to the CQ tail pointer, which is attacker controllable. So ultimately that gets you an arbitrary write of four bytes. You have uh, arbitrary read write primitive. Uh, and from there, it's it's fairly standard. Um, they use the arbitrary read to find the task struct of a child process, and then use the arbitrary write to to smash the task struct to to privilege escalate. So fairly standard exploitation on the arbitrary read write side. Um, yeah, they there also, were some neat tricks to get there, like the CPU entry area. They also use the uh, read to find the uh, task struct for init. So they use their child structure and overrode with information from init. Um, yeah. And that was so, especially with like the NS proxy and all of the pointers in there, they would have kind of the legitimate thing that isn't going through uh, the namespace proxy uh, to replace their own struct with. So, yeah. I mean, effectively the same strategy, just that's also where they got the data to copy into their own structure from. Yeah, so fairly standard on, on that side, but there there were some cool tricks to get there, and um, you know, that's not too surprising because one of the goals that the that Hombre had set for themselves was uh you know trying to find a less well known or documented techniques. So uh yeah, they came up with a pretty cool chain here. Uh not sure how reliable and whatnot it is, but given the circumstances and the fact that they were doing the cross the cross cache, uh it's probably fairly reliable, so. Yeah, I mean, it seems like with the pipe buffers, since you can read and write on them, like, you should be able to do a pretty decent job of figuring out, like, where you are when, uh, with everything. So, I feel like it could be reasonably, uh, reasonably stable for an exploit. They don't actually mention, but nothing really stands out as being, like, really unstable to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, so getting into our next post, unless you had so something you wanted to add there, Z. Yeah, I was going to add on here just just kind of a shout-out with this post. What they're kind of doing is just, you know, something I think... If you're trying to learn exploit development, trying to go through and do this same sort of process where it's like, yes, existing strategies and techniques exist for what you're trying to do, but trying to come up with your own, even if they're variants on it, Taking the time to actually hunt and search for your own primitives, I think, is a really important skill to actually practice, especially as you're getting started, learning things. Because there's no real way, like, at least I've never seen, like, a course that really teaches you to hunt for primitives or, like, the possible u users and all of that. 
Um, so just taking the time and kind of putting yourself in the position to practice that sort of skill, I think is rather valued. It's something I call out in like that CTF to real world post I did. Is that already a couple years ago? I'm not sure. Maybe I believe just a year so, and a yeah. half. Um, but did that quite a while ago. I kind of call out taking the time to actually practice hunting for your own strategies and it's kind of what they're going at here. And I appreciate kind of the details being included a little bit about how they hunted. Uh, but just the fact that, like, yeah, there was a similar one they took inspiration from and reading all of that. Uh, I just appreciate those details out of this post. Yeah, and even if you're not, uh, or sorry, even if you're an experienced exploit developer or whatever, it's it's good practice for ramping up on a target too. So um, it can get you, it can force you to get familiar with the internals of uh, whatever target you're looking at. So yeah, like the I think way it's good, good practice. When ramping up on a target, the way I'd kind of approach it is starting off by learning what the common techniques are in the first place and just implementing them that way. Uh, and once you kind of know what's common or not, then going into your own. Because, yeah, going into your own does force you to explore a lot more code than just trying to follow the common ones. But it's always useful to know what's actually being done and what actually works right now. So getting into our next post, last week a buffer overflow was reported named uh, Looney Tables in GNU Libc's dynamic loader. Uh, I'll let Z get into this one. Yeah, and this one's fun. I mean, something C is known for, string processing issues. Um, we've got our uh, glibc tunables. I'm going to be honest, I don't entirely understand what, what exactly you're doing with these. I have at no point. I think I've run into them exactly once. I don't think I ever need to use them. I just like, you know, reading docs came across them. Uh, it's like, I think it's something like that. But um, glibc, basically you start a program, you could have this glibc underscore tunables environment. And then when the glibc loader is going through, it's going to process these tunables in order to get like its, I guess, sort of a runtime config. I'm just trying to find... It allows you to configure various settings of the runtime. So, like, you can set, like, the x86 shared cache size or yeah, the tcache count for malloc or something like that. There's, there we go. I, I thought I had a link ready to go with uh, the tunables. Um, or at least some list of them here. Uh, yeah, this is from, like, on Linux. The list of tunables has all these things, like... Uh, the one that stood out to me was this glibc mem tagging, so being able to turn memory tagging on and off. Or, I well, like, I assume on and off, but I do see it has a max value of 255, so it's not just a boolean. But you've got these various things that can be configured at runtime using that environment value. Uh, but then in certain cases, like with SecUid IDs, you don't want to pass through all of these tunables in case they can do something that is security relevant. So they have this class of tunables that are called like SXID array, saying like if they have the security level, this tunable should be removed from the list and not passed through. Uh, which leads to the couple commits that ended up introducing this bug. Um... I, I guess I don't really need to go too much into the history, but they had a little bit of a... Uh, initially, it would pass through, like, invalid tunables, and then they tried to fix that, so they removed it and kind of processed out all of the invalid ones and all of the, like, security ones that need to be removed, uh, which, of course, leads to some uh, parse tunables, which I, I keep saying tunables, and I think it should be tunables. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, 
yeah, that just kind of stuck in my head from something else. But you've got uh, the string gets passed in there that's coming out of the uh, coming out of the environment variable, and they're just doing this editing inline. So in C, inline string editing. Of course, there's going to be problems, um, and that's what we've got here in this while loop. Uh, I guess I should also mention that the tutables list in this environment will be a uh, colon separate. So you'll have name equal sign value colon name equal sign value and just kind of repeating that for all of your tunable values uh so the while true loop here is just going to iterate over everything looks fairly classic while loop here that just iterate or keeps incrementing len until it finds either the equal sign the colon or a null byte indicating the end uh does that then checks which character it did get if it's a null byte that's where it um base terminates terminates your uh the tunable string uh the one that's ending adds that null byte and then returns out from there uh if it's a colon they're like hey we were expecting a value so they just kind of increment it by one and uh continue the loop they go back to the beginning but if they find the equal sign they know like the name they start trying to track what the value is um, which again, everything here seems very normal. They're just going to increment to find the value. They're just going to increment until they find either the colon or the null byte indicating the end. So all of that fairly normal, how it's iterating through. Um, and you can see down here where they're checking the security level of the, I guess they iterate all of the tunables in the list there just to check, like, is this one that we know about, uh, checking the name of it and checking its level. And if it's not, then they can go ahead and write it back into the tunable string or just skip ahead on it. Um, they, uh, so anyway, what you're left with is this kind of edge case where at the very end here. So normally if they found a, um, if they found just the colon coming through here, so they're going through here. Um, I'm just trying to find exactly. Oh, okay. I guess it's at the end of the loop. There's condition I was looking for. Um, they've got this condition that's just looking if where they're at. So after it's done this writing of everything from that equal sign over to either the colon or the null byte. Um, if the character that they terminated uh the last loop on was a null byte uh it just increments the pointer basically one forward from where it was um and where p was last updated was up here when it was looking for the name so it's just pushing it one past like the name uh i think past the equal sign technically um and it's just doing that versus uh my apologies i did just get that backwards in this iterating loop if it's not a null byte it's going to push p forward um it's going to push this uh uh that's the tunable string but kind of where it's currently at so it's going to push that pointer forward uh past what it's just consumed uh because it is taking advantage of len there whereas if it's a null byte this just doesn't execute at all it never pushes it forward but it will repeat the loop um and then repeats the loop, and they're expecting that they're just going to land right back in here because they had a null byte. So they're just expecting to read again up to the null byte and be like, okay, now we can terminate. And they didn't want to duplicate this code down at the bottom. The problem is 
Um, if you have a malformed string, which I believe they do have an example of it, I'm just not. Yeah, they there have like is. if you set a tunable to yeah. another tunable key value pair, yeah. Yeah. So the problem is, um, if you have two names and then the value, uh, the way this is going to get iterated on is it's going to read the name first, so it reads up into the equal sign, which is fine. It's read the correct name, and then it's going to write, uh, and then it's going to read to the value, which is going to be that uh, null pointer, which you know in theory appears after that last a. Um, it's going to read that as the value. It's going to be like, okay, tunable one is okay. Let's write that back into the string. Um, but because it saw the null byte at the end there, it didn't update the pointer. So you've still got that pointer that's right there at the start of tunable two. Uh, so when this loop runs again, it's going to go ahead and run tunable two equals AA. It's going to see that. So it's going to parse it once again, reading the name is tunable two and the value is AAA. Um, so I read that again and write that into the string again. Uh, although the string is getting that original string, didn't reallocate anything, it didn't make it larger. So this copy is now going to be out of bounds because it's written, uh, one, it's written the original string back, getting you back to the original size. And then it's also writing this entire thing, whatever values you've got there, it's writing that again, now out of bounds on that string. Uh, so fundamentally, like, to explain this really simply, well, I just walked through the whole iterator and the problem being their attempt not to duplicate this null code by keeping it up there and letting the loop go again. Um, the simple way of explaining this is if you give it this malformed uh, tunable in the environment, it misreads that and ends up writing it, basically writing it twice. Um, it does strip a little bit, but writing most of it twice. Uh, which is kind of a fun little issue. I'll, I'll be honest. It is something that's a little bit different than I think a lot of the string parsing issues you see where it ends up just iterating out of bounds, being tricked into incrementing like one or, you know, going a little bit forward beyond what it should, incrementing multiple times. Fortunately, it looks like in a lot of this code, like they don't do that kind of dynamic move. Like, oh, we got this character, so let's skip the next character sort of deal. They don't do that, so they don't fall into that trap. And that is another code smell to kind of be aware of. Uh, but yeah, so they end up with this buffer overflow in that string. Um, and the way they're able to exploit this, they do talk a little bit about some potential strategies, some things that won't work. Uh, what is kind of important to note is that the allocation at this point, when it's actually allocating something, like they're actually using this minimal malloc function because... At this stage, like glibc malloc has not yet been initialized. It's still very early on in the loading process. Uh, so they don't even have that started yet. And so they're just using minimal malloc, which is basically just and mapping more memory as you need to as you request it. Um, and because the mmap uh, allocator of the kernel is kind of top down, um, that it's very predictable, way more predictable than the heap. Yes. Yeah, like you're not dealing with a lot of random data just kind of roaming around. Like this is all happening super early in the process. Very predictable, just top down, just give me this data, give me this data. And one thing they do is kind of an optimization, but um, they've got this call lock example, which again, it does ultimately just end up using that minimal malloc, just looping it. Um, in that case, like, 
they don't even initialize some of the values because fresh memory from the kernel gained super early on, they're not reusing memory, at least in their virtual address space. So this fresh memory that they've received from the kernel should already be zero super early on like this. So well, their app will just return you a zero page for, for new allocations. Like it, it shouldn't, it'll never return stale data really. So yeah, like nothing's been freed at this point. Like they haven't returned anything to actually have anything that's dirty. Yeah. Um, and so basically what their exploit ended up doing was they used their overflow and they have a longer process here describing exactly how they came across this, but they know the struct link map would be reachable. And what they end up targeting is the library search path that is stored for the loader when it's going to start loading all the libraries. Uh, they overflow into that library search path, overflowing all the other values with no bytes, um, which did confuse me a little bit. I'll touch on that in just a moment, but effectively they overwrite the library uh, search path, and that way they can get the loader to load a library that they control like their own libc uh, when it gets to actually loading that, uh, which is kind of fun having this really early x like you're able to... I target some of these really early stage events like the loading and uh like I don't think I've ever seen an exploit that's able to uh hijack the loading of binaries or the loading of libraries like that. Uh which is kind well, of they're cool basically to see. they're using the memory corruption to create like an uninitialized use type scenario, which is really cool. I don't think I've really seen that before. Um and it's just because, you know, the assumptions that the memory is going to be zeroed is a fair assumption to make, except for in the case of memory corruption. So it's it's a fun subversion of what's typical. Um, and yeah, like usually that info path would be null or would be initialized, like if it was initialized, uh, would be initialized later on. But yeah, because you're able to do it earlier, you can kind of race it, so to speak, and, and get your own library loaded. So I like that aspect of it, yeah. Yeah, I did like that aspect. I was a little bit unclear on some of the exploitation data. So that is why I'm just kind of hand-waving, getting right to the point they targeted uh, the link map, overwrote that value, and kind of went there. Because I don't understand exactly how they were able to, for example, write, or write certain null bytes in there, because they did have to uh, spam in null bytes. So those values, those pointers, would still get initialized by the code la later, but then writing in the pointer that they wanted for that particular value. Um, it seemed a little bit unclear, but they talk about, uh, somewhere in here, uh, the bytes are written out of bounds by parsed, uh, tunables are also read out of bounds. Um, I guess they do say on line 234, so let me scroll up on that. I think we looked at it and didn't really understand what they were talking about, to be honest. Yeah, like, we, my understanding understanding is it's reading that environment string so as it's writing out of bounds it's reading the value from that original string maybe it's not maybe something else is going on here but like the way i understood is it's right or it's reading like you're basically getting a duplication of that original data ends up reading it twice um yeah i'm not actually totally sure what they mean by it uh, I'm just looking here, because they go value, no, okay, yeah, that should still be kind of going to the original pointer. I, I had a thought there, but no, that didn't work. So yeah, I'm a little bit confused on some of the details here. 
Um, I want to be upfront that I am not entirely confident in my understanding of how that worked. Uh, and just kind of getting to the point with, yeah, they targeted a library or the shared library, like loading path or search path. Sorry. Um, that's what they targeted. They managed to do it. They wrote a bunch of no bytes. Yeah. I just wanted to be clear that I'm a little bit confused on this post. I did have some trouble actually with this post in general. I don't want to spend a bunch of time like hating on it um, or anything like that because it is still an interesting vulnerability. This is more likely just that there's some little connection that I'm just missing. Yeah, there's some nuances that were hard to get because ultimately this is uh, an advisory. Like it's um, it's not like a full blog post where you would expect the background information, but getting that background information was particularly difficult because even on the tunables, um, when I was trying to find some information on like the SXID erase behavior, it's just not documented anywhere as far as I can tell. I spent like 10 to 15 minutes trying to search on it and I had to dig through a bit of the code to get even the littlest bit of understanding of um, some of the background here. So it's it's tricky to get a good grasp on unless you're familiar specifically with tunables and how this like um, like the early loading process of the of the GNU dynamic loader. So yeah, some of the details are a little bit fuzzy, but overall it's uh it's an understandable exploit process and, and yeah, uh, at its core, like I said, like I it's... liked how they, they got the uninitialized use type scenario going yeah like at its core like it is it's an overflow and they just corrupt data there's a little bit of that nuance as you said like they're expecting to be uninitialized later on and all of that like there's that nuance to it but at its mm -hmm. at its core it's a fairly understandable bug yeah so getting into another somewhat uh, complicated bug out of GitHub Security Lab, we have a post from uh, Manu Mo on a JIT bug in Chrome. It's quite detailed as per usual with this post, so I'm going to keep it somewhat surface level as getting into the internals of the JIT compiler and whatnot um, is both quite complicated and not really either of our areas. Um, but getting into a bit of background, Modern browsers leverage shit for performance, which will basically take hot paths of JavaScript and compile it to run faster. Uh, and the JIT compiler for Chrome is called TurboFan, uh, which will go through the bytecode of the JavaScript function that's hot pathed. And by hot path, I just mean it's it's being called and executed a lot. Um, and it will transform it into nodes, which will then go through some optimization passes to see which nodes don't have some important impact or effect on the dependency and can be dropped. Um, and the information on the state of objects that are being used, such as the offsets of fields and whatnot, um, because obviously JavaScript objects can get quite complicated, um, they have to track that in a mapping. And whenever an object is accessed, say like uh, a parameter to a function or something and accessing a field on that object, um, the compiler will, spec will speculate on the layout using the map of the object, perform uh, optimization and whatnot. Um, but dealing with that is extremely hard because you have a lot of operations in JavaScript that can internally taint the state of the object and you have to keep track of that as a JIT compiler. Um, for example, a callback might be invoked that switches out the object type after reading some property from it and then changing that property after the callback. Uh, the JIT compiler has to keep track of all these things. And this problem was made even harder and even worse with the feature that landed in Chrome 95 called concurrent compilation, uh, which is where TurboFan can JIT functions in a background thread while the main thread is running the code like as normal in the interpreter. 
Um, so of course, this introduces the possibility for races to pop up. Um, for example, what happens if the compilation process changes an object while the interpreter is executing it in the main thread? Um, so that's kind of where this bug comes into play. Uh, not exactly, it's not quite a race condition. Um, the function that's particularly responsible here is this prepare install function of the uh, compilation dependency class. Uh, which we'll call this ensure has initial map function, which what exactly that does isn't super important. What is important is that it can implicitly change the layout or map of an object um, because it'll run some optimization on it. Um, now, this prepare install function is actually called on the main thread, not on the background JIT thread, um, which makes it seem like, hey, okay, it won't cause any concurrency issues with the main thread because it's running off the main thread. Um, but the problem is, sort of how the main thread is scheduled, so to speak. Um, because if you have a function that accesses fields in a loop, for example, uh, that loop can be interrupted um, to call this prepare install to change the mapping. So say you access some field in that function before the loop, run the loop a while, and then it gets interrupted. Um, that prepare install method is called. If you then access that field again after the loop, it's possible that layout changed and there's no additional checks that are inserted after the loop. Um, so it will end up accessing at an incorrect offset. And that, that basically leads to a sort of type confusion scenario, which in browsers is game over, basically. Um, he goes through the process of exploiting the bug, which I won't go into too much as it involves a lot of browser internals. Um, but basically, they, they use uh, that offset confusion to uh, smash a named dictionary's capacity to get an out-of-bounds access and then use the out-of-bounds access to create a more powerful type confusion between objects and arrays um, to get your more typical fake object, leak object type primitives. Um, if you're curious on more on what I mean there, you can check out the frac paper by Salo uh, on attacking modern JavaScript engines. But yeah, um, the whole idea here is that you're able to get this confusion between the offsets because the optimization will change the mapping of the object, uh, and then you can spiral that into a more useful corruption uh, to RCE, the, the Chrome renderer. So quite a cool post. Um, there is a fair amount of detail that I skipped over there. Like I said, if you're not uh, that familiar with like the Chrome internals, then a lot of the objects and methods that are being mentioned here won't really mean anything to you. Um, so that's kind of why I skipped over some of them, but uh, it's it's kind of your your standard optimization type bug in the JIT compiler. Um, and like I said, it was these types of bugs were exacerbated by the concurrent compilation feature, which uh, is very interesting. I'm surprised they would ship something like that. Um, I guess there must be some performance need for it, but it sounds like um, bugs waiting to happen. So. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more coming out of uh, the concurrent compilation uh, feature edition. Yeah, it's kind of a surprising feature because it definitely adds a high degree, or it seems like it would add a high degree of complexity. Uh, On something that's already super complex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, very much already complex. Yeah, adds a high degree of complexity there. Although I could imagine there is a pretty substantial performance benefit to being able to do the compilation uh you know in, in the, the background, background thread and all that like yeah. it does make sense but definitely from a security standpoint like it is adding uh or is probably i haven't looked at the code but it is probably adding quite a bit of uh complexity in there um it, it is kind of interesting like the use of the interrupt uh as a way of kind of like i said it's not quite a race condition but you kind of get a similar vibe from it 
It's like an of, interleaving like, race condition, sort of. Yeah, I guess. I, yeah, I was going to say maybe like I could relate to like reentry, or it's coming back. Sorry, into that's that what code. I was looking for. The term I was looking for was reentrant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of goes with that, which haven't seen a lot of bugs like that, but you know, definitely interesting to see. Um, and definitely, you know, that sort of thing could happen elsewhere. Obviously, not this exact case where, you know, it's a JIT thing, but there are these complexities when it comes to having multiple processes or multiple threads going on that always just seems surprising. Yeah. So that's most of the topics we have for this episode. We do have one shout out that was, uh, that's a post that was put out by Synactive, which talks about, uh, Scudo, which is, uh, an LLVM hardened allocator that, uh, I believe Android is using as of Android 13. Um, uh, Android 11. It's been the default in user land for a while. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Android 11. So, yeah, the, the device they were testing was Android 13. That's where I got the numbers mixed up. But, uh, yeah, the post goes into some background. They, they do, like, an in-depth uh, assessment of the allocator, um, what it does, talking about how the, um, how the heap is managed internally, talking about the headers of of the chunks for uh for allocating from the heap and the security implications of that um making things like overflows a little bit harder and whatnot so it's it's more of a deep dive on the allocator internals which is why we left it as a shout out um there is a bit of a section towards the end that talks about the security implications um which are are somewhat interesting i mean it's not an end-all be-all as you would expect uh various scenarios like use after free and and um well, yeah, primarily like use after free and type confusion, it, it won't entirely prevent and it can be gotten around, especially if you have a good set of primitives to work with. But, you know, it is a hardened allocator. It does add complication to exploit development and it can kill certain scenarios, I'm sure. So, yes, yeah, Inactive did a pretty good uh, deep dive here. It, it's worth the read, especially if you're interested in allocator internals. So just wanted to give it a quick shout out. Yeah, definitely worth the read and... You know, has a lot of that background information if you are going to try and do something on um, on Android or somewhere else that this is used. I can't think of anywhere I've actually seen it used outside of Android, but I have to imagine it it is used outside of there. Um, and yeah, the ultimate conclusion of it is like a lot of the defenses can be circumvented, but there is a steep cost to doing so for the attacker in terms of like the primitives you need to have. So not impossible, but a lot and actually a lot of the primitives aren't that uncommon either. They're more primitives though that you would think of when you're actually trying to attack the allocator itself, the type of primitives you would need for um like the various house of attack schemes, the GLAB C allocator. Um kind of things like that that you would need here, like the ability to allocate and retain them and release at the right moment. They're not unheard of attacks and actually especially retaining and releasing that is common with use after free too. Um, and of course, spranks like they're not unheard of primitives, but it does raise the bar. It does mean you need to do a little or a good chunk more work to exploit some of these issues because of the allocator now. All right. So as always, thanks goes out to everyone who tuned in. If you want to go back and check out past episodes, you can find the most recent ones on Twitch and all of them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links off Anchor. Uh, feel free to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter. Links for those are uh, down below in the description. And once again, 
next week's episodes will likely be canceled and check out our discord announcements channel for updates and whatnot on that. And uh, we'll catch you next time.